hamster with a blunt penknife and do it quicker. A hamster with a blunt pen knife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast, which is disguising itself as an interview podcast today. I am here for part two of the magnificent Toby Haydoke's interview. Hello, Toby. Hello. Why is anyone listening to this? But hello. <laughs> Especially <laughs> after last, the last one. <laughs> I think I, I don't. I think I forgot to do any jokes at all. Don't think you, I think you could listen to the last one and go, is he supposed to be a comedian? But anyway, there we go. This is going out during the 60th. This is a celebration. God almighty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it was absolutely fascinating. Um, do, do, do you know what? Do you know what? I said to Sherry, because I'm downstairs and Sherry Lee, my partner, is upstairs. I've bags the downstairs to do this. Uh, and I said, she, she said, should we watch? Should we watch telly tonight? I said, Oh, I'm doing a podcast tonight. And she said, Oh, is it those one of those ones where you talk about Doctor Who for 17 hours? And I went, Um, yeah, I think it's probably <laughs> that's the one. Yeah. And as I said to you off mic a minute ago, I don't cut a word. So, you know, Yikes. partly due to you know my lack of editing experience and mostly because it's compelling to listen to. Well, in the same way that a car crashes. Anyway, let's not get into what's, <laughs> what what do you want to know? <laughs> well, 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 very quickly, though, just to say, right, because I was talking to the fabulous Robert Valentine the other day for one of oh, our yes. Finnish big, and um, we were talking about Ron and Elise from the Purity. Yes. Series. And we, we did a big session on that because Mark and I are massive fans of that particular run of stories. Yeah. And he was basically saying how they were supposed to be kind of one story shots. Yeah. But what was delivered was so good. They couldn't let those characters go. And then they just became instrumental. Like in that, Ah. as it, as it came along. So it's quite nice to be able to deliver that feedback to you. Well, that's very nice. I mean, I, I, what happened? Well, because what happened was they, they came to me because they were after Shirley, uh, and they said, "Would you know? We've we've got a we've got a character um, who I think no, I think they'd said who would, who would be a who would be popping up throughout. Maybe they didn't. Anyway, they said we've got a we've got a character. We've got Ruth Ruth Madeley in as this you know um, wheel wheelchair user regular, and we 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 need a we you know we we would like. We've got this other character, and would Shirley be interested in doing it? Um, could could you ask her? So of course I said yes, and she went absolutely. And she was very poorly; she's been very poorly since COVID, actually. Um, but 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 can it's still working? But um, has to have a, enormous amounts of rest, and, uh, and and at that time was was flat on her back for quite a lot of the time. But she could do stuff, um, sort of lying down. Uh, she's had, she's got mobility issues, various other things, and um, and 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 I said, well, yeah, but I'll, I'll kind of have to be there to do all the because she done she did just done some episodes of the Archers, I think, and had done something else which which had all been done from from here because I'd worked out a way of I'd bought some decent equipment and I'd I'd been doing the podcasts and stuff, uh, and I'd been I think doing my Radio Four extra stuff from here, so I knew we could do it from from here. Um, so she said, "Yeah, but I'll, you know, I'll have to do it from home." And a lot of, but a lot of stuff was being done from home at that point because it was, it was COVID. It was all, everything was being done from home, pretty much. I think so. That that wasn't an issue because that was that was the norm at that point, anyway. And then I think Jack said, "Look, she's got this husband character who's only in a couple of scenes. Um, you know, it's not much, but it would, you know, do, do you want to do it? it Makes sense if you're there." And I was like, "Yeah, fine." I Way to I'd sell do. a part here. I'd do it, do it. Um, 
Uh, you know, may as well. Why not? Um, <laughs> and then, and then it sort of dribbled. You're going, oh, he might, he might be in a scene, in the last scene of one of the later ones. And then, and then I think when Rob was doing his, I think he'd said something like, I think I might use Ron if that's all right. Oh, I don't, yeah, fine, whatever. So yeah, Ron just sort of kept coming, coming back, um, and actually got some quite nice bits to do in in the end. But it was, it was originally, it was, it was just, it was just because I was there. Um, and it's funny you asked me a question in the last one about you know the parts I would like to have played and you know I said oh a cold villain or I said you know Henry Gordon Jago the, the you know the very flowery thespy sort of actually quite often the parts I get are the slightly ineffectual annoying bloke so I may see myself as this florid theatrical type but actually what I what I project to a lot of casting people is I mean either Carruthers Summerton which is annoying which is annoying git in the uh, Jago and Lightfoot or or I do get quite a lot of sort of ineffectual husbands <laughs> but that started as like a, a germ of a part and then come that third set jack rayner's script where you're there trying to rehearse what you're going to say to what well, as it turns out Cheryl Lee, yeah um in an alternative universe oh it's just gold and then you got the hit the bit that you love from other people in doctor who you got the hero moment in yeah in the last story you know oh, i was punching the air going go on toby you know? yeah yeah though that was that was fun that was fun it was yes ron 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 i mean he's the sort of character that 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 you know russell t davis i think is very good at and, and that, that always works very nicely in doctor who is the is the person that may not be all that but when push comes to shove does better than you would expect them to do and i think that's quite a nice a nice thread that runs through a lot of doctor who is that is that everybody's got it in them to to be remarkable with you know just outside their own limitations we told rob at the end of that that segment of the interview that we demand that um <laughs> those characters come back in a future release we were like, we got to the end of that. We've got this fabulous series of regulars around the Sixth Doctor now. Uh, right. Well, I want my name on the cover of the next one then, because we're okay. ready on this one. <laughs> Do I have to take a note of this? Get, get, get my agent involved in that. Tell you. Uh... <laughs> uh, but what we're actually here to talk about in episode two of this glorious interview is, oh, I'm basically looking to unearth some anecdotes. You've worked alongside a lot of actors, creators in Doctor Who. Mm. And so I was basically just going to, I wanted to ask you to, cause you, sh and you share a lot of this on your podcast as well. And it's, they're always wonderful stories. I, I'll never forget you talking about Jackie Lane on the train. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is well, yeah, actually, can I start? tell you that story? Yes, please. Well, okay. I mean, I, I do kind of think I, I have a Doctor Who radar because I, I do sort of spot people. Uh, I don't know if it's I'm looking, you know, I've I've quite often uh, end up, uh, you know, on Piccadilly Station. I, I you know, I've seen, uh, I, oh, any number of people. I can pick them out from a crowd. I saw Julian Glover and Ida Blair getting on a train once. Christopher Benjamin, I've seen at Piccadilly Station. Uh, Colin Stinton, who's the president in uh, Last of the Time Lords. Uh, Ellie Haddington, who's uh, who's in the, the episode after that, the Professor Lady. I've seen them all on uh, Manchester. So I think I. I don't know if my radar's particularly attuned to to sort of picking picking people out, and I and I think I don't know. You again, you always think you're the centre of the universe, but I quite often end up, um, you know, if I drop Doctor Who into a conversation, somebody will go, oh, my, you know, my uncle was in Doctor Who, and uh, you know, I, I I I don't know. All roads for me seem to lead to Doctor Who, and um, 
uh, I was getting on the train from London to Manchester Piccadilly, which was a regular journey for me at that point. And I always used to head to Coach E because that was the unreserved one so that I could get a table with a plug socket so I could set up my laptop and do a bit of work. Uh, and I saw that, and I always used to get really annoyed if somebody got on Coach E in front of me and then dithered because I would get stuck behind them and everyone would fill up from the other end and I wouldn't get my thing. So I saw this person getting on you know my end of coaching and i was like oh bloody hell and it was Your a end. small small yeah small small lady with a with a case and i went oh christ i think that's jackie lane and uh and i got on the train so i didn't sit in my seat uh, the, the place i normally go because she was there and i thought well if it is her i don't want to be that guy so i actually went and sat it further up but I was so disco, I got so nervous and discombobulated. And I thought, I'm, and I looked and I thought, no, that's Jackie Lane. That's definitely Jackie Lane. And then I thought, and I started texting friends of mine going, I think I'm on a train with Jackie Lane. <laughs> uh, Braille, like the, nothing really exists, does it? Well, it, I, I, I would have dismissed the idea had I not known that Jackie Lane had roots in Manchester. So it made sense to me that she would be traveling to Manchester. But I also knew, you know, she'd got this reputation of being somebody who didn't want to talk about Doctor Who and stuff like that. And of course, I've been fortunate to meet pretty much everybody, you know, um, through professional means, not, not, you know, not, not, not having to sort of hang around or go to events or whatever. I, you know, I've been brought into their orbit very, very fortunately. But Jackie Lane was the one that was that was never going to happen with. We tried to get her for DVD commentaries and failed. So of all the people to be on a train with, and I have bumped into Sophie Aldred at uh, at uh, Euston Station, actually. But you know, I see Sophie many times. But but Jackie Lane, the Greta Garbo of Doctor Who, yeah. uh, and I wandered up and down, and I texted friends, and I was getting uh, and 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 my friend was going, you, you you've got to you've got to speak to her. Blah, blah, blah. So I thought, well, what I'll do is, I'll wait till we've passed. Uh, it wasn't Stockport, it was the stop before. The one that's about 20 minutes left. Because I thought then she'll know she's not been cornered. She's not stuck for the whole journey. Got an escape plan. Yeah. She she knows that the worst that this will be is 20 minutes. And uh, and I walked past her about four times. This sort of stuff. And you can smell the fear. I get very, I yeah, I, oh, my stomach churns. I, I hate that. I hated doing Who's Round because I... I hate the process of phoning people to organize and ask, and, and it, it makes me feel physically ill. I've, my, the stuff that I have done, I'm exactly the wrong person to do because it causes me great distress. I hate writing obituaries as well because of the time factor and the fact that you have to phone up people and, and get things off them and, and, you, and you can't beat around the bush because you haven't got the time. I'm, I'm entirely the wrong person to do any of the things that I do. So anyway, I- You said uh, earlier about permission. So yeah. you're literally live asking permission, can I sit with you and talk to you? Exactly. Well, I said, uh, excuse me, but are you, you, are you Jackie Lane? And she went, how did you know that? I said, uh, well, I am a Doctor Who fan, but I'm also, you know, I make documentaries for the DVDs. And she said, oh, no, come, come sit down. And I chatted to her and, and, and I, and again, I played it, like I said a bit in the last one about, you know, I, approached michael allaby by going oh you know you probably wandered away from acting i sort of played it to to jackie as as kind of um you know oh you you know she she doesn't remember that much and she's not that interested and she was 
exactly the opposite. She was totally interested. She she remembered the stories, and she was. Uh, and and I said, oh, I said, and I said, well, um, because you know we I know we've tried to get you for the for the DVDs, and I said, um, you know, is it? I said, I said, if it's that you're worried about uh, doing it, you know, we we you know we we'd come to you, we'd do it. And she said, oh, I haven't been in a stu- television studio for fifty years, so I wouldn't really enjoy it. I said, well, we you know we could go to you, and I and I tried a few different sort of gentle things, and she was you know she wasn't, and she wasn't. Rude. She didn't brush me off at all. She was very, very polite, um, but but kept sort of having excuses. And then when I said, "Well, anyway, I'll I'll I'll, I'll go now," and she said, "No, no, no, stay and chat." And she was really happy to talk. But I got the impression she was actually the opposite to me. She was quite happy to talk one on one, but anything else, she didn't really like the the idea of. And she was totally relaxed. She was totally open and game about Doctor Who. She was delighted to have been recognised. She was delighted to chat. Uh, and I got her to sign a couple of bits of paper for me. Um, and actually, we then kept in touch a little bit over... over. I got her email address um, a bit, a little bit down the line because um, when she did the, the bit for the 50th uh, anniversary, um, I think somebody there asked her, I think Russell Minton there asked her if she'd do a who's round. And she said, Oh, to- Toby's already asked me to do something. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so I was quite surprised she remembered me who I was and, and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, I'd, I'd got her email. So then I sent her a thing saying, could, could I send you a couple of things to sign? And she gave me her address. And, and then I said, well, look, if ever you're coming to Manchester again, um, you know, I know you did Corrie back in the sixties. We could we could take you back to Corrie if you wanted to go, because some listeners might not know my 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 other half is a is a regular in in Corrie, um, and uh, uh, and she said, oh no, I you know she she, she she demurred again. I said, oh, but if you know, I'd love to buy you a meal if you if you're a loose end whenever you manage. She said, oh, I don't really like going out to loud restaurants. And and again, she wasn't being rude. She wasn't telling me to f off because she was then saying, oh, but please send me this and please ask me. So that none of it was a brush off. But I just got the impression that she was sort of shy and she didn't go in for any of the usual things that you would do to maybe make an actor more malleable or or chatty, but but without being cold, dismissive or unpleasant. So she was lovely, Jackie Lane. Uh, and as I say, I had a few back and forths with her. I wish I'd been bolder now, but I didn't like to bother her. Again, I'd cast her in my head as somebody that was a bit shy and didn't really want to know. So I didn't want to push anything. Now that, and of course, when somebody's alive, you think of them as being very present. And I don't think of people like that as being particularly old. Um, but of course, she was 80, I think, when she died. But um, but you think of them as being around. And and of course, as soon as she died, I thought, oh, I wish I'd, I wish I'd been a bit bolder there because she never told me to F off. She never said she wasn't interested. She just didn't want to do the socializing thing and didn't want to do the recording thing. But we could have probably chatted back and forth quite amiably and, and i and i could have maybe you know got stuff out of her in in in, in that way and had a had a had a had a had some kind of sort of relationship with her in a way that i have had with quite a few other actors that i've i've got to know um you know who who, who i'm on the christmas card list of you know very strange thing isn't it because we love doctor who um and i think we assume all actors want that kind of attention so like i remember when janet fielding sort of dipped out of fandom for a bit and just said you know i'm, I'm distancing myself from all of this and there was a sort of coldness towards her like that's completely turned around now yeah um, and i feel like the same thing with jackie lane as well and, and a few others as well that have been a bit elusive um, and i think we just we don't understand why you don't want to talk about this thing that we love 
Um, you, well, I th- it's not. I think it's. I think we sometimes mischaracterize them not being wild about talking about it, with them hating it and mm. thinking we're assholes. When it's actually nothing of the sort. She just it just wasn't her kind of thing, really. She, did, she and and I think I did get the sense that you know she was a bit upset that she'd been fired by Ennis Lloyd uh, and her mate. And, and I think she'd said to Ed Stradling when he tried to interview her for the season three documentary that he did, "Look, my two memories are that William Hartnell wasn't very nice to me, and Ennis Lloyd wasn't very nice to me, and I, I, I don't want to. The only things I say on a documentary yeah. to be." two things i don't particularly want to say that i'm that i don't want to be the lasting impression that i give you know which was actually very decent of her um because she was only on the show for about three months do you know what i mean it's uh um but but i yeah i think i think sometimes we figure we think it figures bigger in people's lives than of course it might not have done than it might have done because it's the center of our universe but also yeah as i say a lack of interest in diving into the convention circuit does not mean they think doctor who's shit and everybody who likes it's a prick um but by the same token i think one also needs to get what is that you know i always feel like a sort of you know forelock tugging you know fan who people will think is uh, uh, you know has a nerve even emailing them she was always happy to get an email. It was fine, but I'd always be really nervous about. She probably wouldn't have minded it if I phoned her up, um, but I would never have plucked up the courage to do so. But but actually, you know, if somebody sends me an email, I'm I'm I reply to an email because I'm a person getting an email, and that's all somebody who's been in Doctor Who is. It's just a person getting an email. But I think we build it up, of course, because we are fans, and therefore, you know, there is a certain sort of subservience. The the, the, the the you know the relationship is is of of somebody who is an appreciator of the the thing that the person has done. So it automatically changes the dynamic slightly. A very strange thing then when you go on to have a relationship with somebody where it was that dynamic and then you're sort of on a flat level then, you know, you're friends with that person. Yeah, well, I sent a message to somebody from Doctor Who recently and said, oh, I, I'm sorry to bother you. I hope you don't mind. And and, and they said, Toby, you don't have to, you're a friend of mine. You don't have to apologise for sending me a, a, a message. Uh, and that was really that was really kind of them to actually say that that was very decent and generous. But I, I, I think it's because I always slightly recoil when I've heard other fans who've who've been in positions of, you know, doing interviews or working with people being a bit pally with people. I I don't like it when Doctor Who magazine calls Tom Baker Tom and Barry Let's Barry. If I'm writing up a, an article about somebody. Uh, for for a professional publication i use their surname uh, you know they they're not my mates they're the subject of my interview or article um and I, I i i do and i found myself doing it recently i think because one gets used to the way things are done i don't know but i'm always uncomfortable when i hear doctor who fans talking about tom and talking about he's not your friend tom he's not my friend you know um and i find that a bit pally i'm a i'm a little bit more of the generation of, uh, or perhaps I don't know, not even the generation, but uh, of the the demographic where you are a little bit more of a of a of a cap doffer and a, a four doctor, and and uh, I'm not saying it's 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 in any way it's better, but it's more to my taste that there's a little bit of deference there. So I would always recoil, even if you know that that person who was a Doctor Who fan had probably worked professionally with. Uh, this Doctor Who person and has their phone number and so is perfectly entitled to call them Tom and Liz and Katie or whatever. But I would always find it a little bit 
distasteful because it's like, no, you're a fan and they're the person from the show. And I, I still have that. I, I think there's, there's, there is still, I remember Peter Davison saying in an interview, I could never really be friends with a Doctor Who fan. And I do kind of get that because their relationship with you is, 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 or his relationship, his relationship with us is based on us being an appreciator of his work, which, which, which I think can never quite mean that you're, although his, obviously his son, his, his son-in-law was a Doctor Who fan, but he became Doctor <laughs> Who. So I think that's slightly different. But, um, that is the exception I, to the rule. I, you know, I would always be, I, I, I would always be slightly embarrassed, even though, you know, everyone from Doctor Who's very nice to me. Um, I, I, I still, I, I still feel a, a bit of an ass if I was to, um, sort of be too pally i think i don't know you know i don't know approach my approach so i just uh, imagine that i'm best friends with everybody in the entire world so i don't know so many people talk to me because i'm just (laughs) yes but you're uh, you're a person of a very sunny disposition oh i'll try it's all a mask i'll say um okay well then let's move away from somebody who shied away from doctor who the convention circuit to make perhaps the ultimate raconteur of the Doctor Who universe, sadly no longer with us. Do you have any residing memories of Terence Dix? I love Terence Dix. I Sorry wish I, I wish I I wish I could remember the the best memory I have of him, which sounds which which sounds like I'm contradicting myself. He said something to me at Chicago once, and again it alludes to what we were just talking about. Um in the because I, I know that Terence and Barry hadn't wanted, he said, calling them by their first names, Mr. Dix, Mr. Letts, had, <laughs> uh, had not wanted, see, I, 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 I even con- I contradict myself in what I've just said, um, didn't want a moderator for the Curse of Peladon and the Monster of Peladon. Don't know why. Um, I think they felt they could t- do perfectly well without, which is, was not an unreasonable uh, point of view. Um, and kind of said so, um, not in front of me, but I could tell something was going on because they took John Kelly to one side and there was obviously something going on. But um, actually, Barry Letts was then, because he was a very decent man, decent enough at the end of the day to say, because that was the kind of guy I was in front of everybody. Uh, I'd just like to say that, you know, at the beginning of this, we didn't think we needed a moderator and we we said so. and actually you know you've been really good and just said really really nice things but the fact that he did it sort of publicly as well was 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 very kind and and then t- a few years later i was I was at a convention in chicago with terence uh and it wasn't a great time in my life I, uh, yeah yeah i wasn't having a great time in my personal life things were falling apart a bit so i was a bit vulnerable and um but doctor who as ever was you know sort of gave me gave me solace and somewhere to be and I, and I and I loved going to those american conventions and at the end of it i said i said something to terence at the last night sort of you know glass of wine and you know curly sandwiches shindig or whatever and he said something along the lines of, and he went, "Oh, come on!" Because I, I said something like, "You know, it's been great here," and and he was kind of saying, "You know, you've you've done well, 
and you're good at this and and it's been great something about how he'd seen me develop or come into my own or do a good job so and, and he said it and the way he said i'll oh, come on like a sort of sort of mate slash mentor um and i i i had a little moment and i went to and I, and and and, I, and 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 the person i was there with said you okay I said, yeah terence dix just said something that's made me cry <laughs> and i wish i could remember exactly what it was but it was really nice and it was a sort of affirmation it was a kind of you belong here and you've done well and this you know and 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 that's the man whose name was on the spine of the first books i learned to read and all of that you know um he was terence was terence was a great storyteller but he wasn't he was only interested in telling the story that he wanted to tell um and i i heard you talking about him on the the your your podcast today when you talked about you know when he said never let the truth get in the way of a good story and all of that <laughs> uh, there's quite a few there's a few doctor who people like that who've got the things that they want to say and you think oh all it needs is an interviewer like me to ask them something off piste and we will get to the real gold actually no they'll just still answer the questions that you want them to answer uh and i and i tried with terence a few times i got a few bits and bobs but i but he never really went off uh off on too introspective a tangent you know he was a storyteller he didn't take it all particularly seriously he knew how to give good value uh i did my i mean i've i'm sure i've told this before my my favorite terence dicks moment and it's a slightly catty one but it was terribly funny at the time um was when we were doing the invasion of the dinosaurs commentary. I'm sure I've told this on yours. Yeah, Have I told this on yours? Said Peter Miles. Peter Miles one, yeah. <laughs> yes. So that that was that was just so funny. Um can I say uh, the punchline? Because I remember it. Yeah, go on. Yes, yes. Peter, so, every golden word. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the fact he looked a bit like my nan when he said it. My nan had the habit of when she was being a bit of a beast, because she could be quite unkind, she'd sort of her, her bottom lip was quite a Vena Sharplesy sort of thing, and and Terence kind of did that every golden wordy then, and then sort of clamped his bottom lip up. <laughs> the fun, was... Honestly, the funniest thing he ever said to you on a on a recorded commentary is one word. Oh God! And you try to you piece together uh, the fabulous future Earth history of the John Pertwee era, the rise and decline. Of the Earth Empire in colony in space, frontier in space, and the mutants. <laughs> he just went, honestly, Toby, fans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, bless I mean, him. he was so funny. What a what a he was so funny. Uh, he's he's. He, I mean, we always love Robert Holmes's humor, and Robert Holmes wrote good jokes and good characters. And I think we take Terence for granted a little bit because some of the jokes in the scripts that that are Terence's scripts. Some of the some of the gags in um, Fang Rock and and, and Robot are, are just superb. Five Doctors Allow has so me. many great I'm lines. I'm everywhere. It. I, I mean, oh. like, lines from the Five Doctors every day. Yeah, it's beautiful. Decorated. I don't like it. You know. Yeah. No. He's he's it was wonderful, Terence. I'm I, I got to spend quite a lot of time with him, and I liked him very much. And I still can't quite believe he's he's no longer with us. I thought he he would be around forever. Well, then let's move on to somebody else I know you hugely admire. And I think you, don't, don't wince, I think you um, 
you've put out the most detailed interview beyond the writer's tale, which is a superb insight into a writer's mind. But Russell T. Davis, that was a, I mean, I, I don't know how long that was. It was five or six episodes, it was, wasn't it? It was all day. It was a whole day. I still can't quite believe that happened. Um, I mean, I sent him an email and he replied and said, yeah, I, you know, I'll, I'll get back to you. And then, or no, he, I think he said email me in a couple of weeks or something. And then he emailed me back and said, when are we going to do this? Uh, and so, and it ended up being the day after Web of Fear and went out on iTunes. You're on so a high we, then. Yeah, but also knackered. I mean, I, I did find myself, I was, and I was doing the comedy store that night, which is a big gig. It's, it's never not a big deal when you're doing the comedy store because it's the most famous, it's the best club in the country. It's the most famous comedy name. You know, if you're doing it, you, you, you know, you, you know you're, you're you're on top of your game really and there's plenty of other people queuing up to do it so you've got to be good uh, uh and i think i would got to pick my kids up from school but i you know he said i can do it friday and so i went yeah um uh, and we cooked him lunch and everything and he didn't know i was with sherry lee so we did i did it at her flat um and and so oh, he's he knocked... a huge Corey fan, isn't he? Yeah. So so she answers the door and he goes, "Oh, marvelous! I didn't know, you know." So uh, so that was quite fun for starters. Um, and looking back at it now, I mean, I look back at all of Who's Round and go, I can't quite believe I did that. Um, I mean, the majority of it was done when I was going through a divorce and I needed something to distract me, um, and so it was, you you know, it was it was quite handy, but uh, it was also driven by you know, a huge vacuum. Uh, and so it sort of makes sense to me, I suppose, that I I busied myself doing that. But but looking back at it now, I go, God, how did I find the time? Because I was still gigging. I was still touring. I was, uh, and, and actually some of it worked out that, you know, the, the people I wanted to interview were nearby where I was passing through. So there's lots of lovely coincidences like that as well. But but Russell agreed to do it. And, and which I'm astonished because we never met each other. I mean, I did, I only knew that he'd even heard of me because not long before that, on the on the Green Death commentary that he does with Katie Manning on episode six, he name checks me and goes, "Oh, we're not going to do a thing like Toby Haydock does," you know. Oh, I did. I think I I knew he'd heard of Moths because I think it had to be it had to be okayed by the Doctor Who people, but I didn't think he he paid me any heed, you know, and certainly that he would agree to be interviewed by me, but. There was also part of me that was like, yeah, but we've all seen Russell T. Davis in, be interviewed on Doctor Who Confidential, so people aren't going to be that interested. People will be much more interested that I've interviewed a Ford. <laughs> I've interviewed a Ford because nobody's interviewed you even a Ford. You made a joke about that. You made a joke about that on the Rusty Davis oh, did I? interviews where you're going. For those people that are only listening to these episodes, <laughs> I've also interviewed a Ford. others. <laughs> And do you know what? Like all the all the the smaller parts and the director and things like that, they were amazing insights of people that I'd never heard interviewed before. This was big, though. Like for me, this interview was big, and it was different because I think on Confidential that that whole sort of everything's marvelous persona is is marketing the show. Of course, it is. There was some sort of scathing honesty at times in your interview which i really liked yeah if i had my time again i'd do it better and i'd ask some different questions about different bits but um of course i'd never met him before and he's so charming um and and i and somebody recently said 
that's a really good interview, you know, and I've, I've, God, I haven't listened to it. I can't listen to myself. Um, and I'll, I'll have to take that as read. I mean, if, if it is a good interview, it's not because of any particular probing I did. I don't think, I think he's a very nice man. And I think he, he responded very nicely to me. He's very generous. He doesn't, he makes you not feel like, um, you know, he's a giant of television and I'm a, I'm a lovey with an iPhone, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, 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 I'm an anorak with a Tascam. Uh, and he didn't make me feel like that. He, he, he made me feel, he, he made me feel as though I was worthy of talking to him. And he's, he, he has that great quality of making you feel special, you know, special, uh, which shows in his writing as well. He's a great example to us, I think, but by the same token, and I would say this to him now, um, he, like Terence Dix, wasn't going to, you know, was it was it going to answer questions he didn't want to answer? If you listen to that interview, I, so at one point I asked Russell if there's if there's uh, any stories that he didn't think work or he would do differently, and he's quite gently goes, "Nope, nope, it's all fine." Now I'm sure that's not true, but that's all he was going to tell me. There was there was even though it sounds like it's candid in places, I th I think he charmed me into not asking any difficult questions i think there are questions to ask about even though i i don't agree with this point of view but to uh, but it was in the air and it's worth talking about about the gay agenda for example about the deus ex machina endings that a lot of his scripts got stick for a good interview a proper interviewer not not a lovey with an iphone i would have paxmaned him on 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 that and tried to sort of go well let's let's talk about that stuff and i and i didn't I love Love and Monsters. I don't like the paving slab at the end. I don't buy it. I think it, it, it's a it's a chink in the armor of a story that otherwise I think is one of my favorites. And I and I really wanted to talk to him about that because I don't like the ending. And and I ask him about it, and I and I end up end up not saying that. And in fact, I end up I think saying, "Oh yeah, and it's great because it's sad." And, and it's not what I did. I I wanted to talk to him about why. I thought that was a bit in the story that I didn't buy the logic of uh, and, and tonally it, it seemed to me an odd way to do it. And I didn't believe in it outside of the episode. And he's a man who can take stuff and he respect and he's respectful of other people's opinions, but he'd so charmed me and disarmed me. And I don't think he was, he, this wasn't deliberate. It's not, it's not, it's not Machiavellian or anything like that, but he's such a disarming and charming person that he made me not want to do it. It's very clever. <laughs> I, I don't want to challenge you on your own interview because you were there and you put it out and you edited it and you obviously listened to it. But sort of the whole thing about the gay agenda, he got passionate. He got angry talking about that. Oh, did I did I bring that up then? OK. I, yeah. I, I, and I, I was really. You think I, I've listened to it? I haven't listened to it. I really I'm... sat up. No, no, no. Because he and he says, you know, just how li he really drives home the point of how little representation there is. Oh, OK. And also, okay. like, so, you know what? I'm, I'm going to challenge you again. I'm so sorry about this. Um, in your own interview, <laughs> but when he's talking about oh, everything's you know, all all the episodes are great. He does give a great argument when he talks about the idiot's lantern. I remember that, and he's going, if this was if this was like the only piece of Doctor Who that came out after the TV movies, we just did one hour. We just put this one piece of television out. It would be lauded. Everyone would be celebrating it. Everybody would say, this is a fantastic piece of Doctor Who. It's only the fact that it's surrounded by these giants in that season. 
And he really made me look at sort of the episodes I'd written off. He's such a smart fella, isn't he? He really is. I, I think he's an, a, an amazing man. Um, and he's very he's very kind. I think he he obviously has to be made of steel as well. You know, you can't be a television executive w- without being. But um, he 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 dis the way he dispenses his time. He's obviously committed to the cause because because of course I also know him from another angle through the 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 stuff that he does that's related to my partner's work because she set up a charity uh and a, 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 a and a group to increase the um awareness and em- employability of disabled people in the television industry uh and you know he was one of the first and biggest people to lend clout and help and do zoom chats and give time and all sorts of other stuff you know he puts his money and his time where his mouth is um but I, I, but he's, you know, he replied, I sent him an email about something trivial about a month ago, um, about something he may or may not have worked on in the 90s. Uh, and he sent me a lovely email back. And it's not just answering the question, a bit of chattiness in there as well, and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, he's, he's, he's one of the biggest figures in the whole of television. And I've met him three times, you know, but, he doesn't go. Why are you email? You know why? I mean, I ration when I email pe- people. I I hope I, ho- I hope I'm you know I hope I know not to be be bothersome. But nonetheless, he could just he could have just not replied. He's and he's I think he's a I think he's a remarkable man. And 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 actually in 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 lockdown, looking back at his Doctor Who and and I I did a lot of Russell episodes in in lockdown. Um, by God, again, well I think we. I think we got used to how good it was so bloody quickly that that watching it all through again, go, my God, as you say, even the kind of average episodes, the bar is so high that, you know, a, a, an average episode is still a damn good episode. I'm not going to cast, cast any shade on what came afterwards. But I'll say this for another podcast. I went back and I watched Daleks in Manhattan and Evolution of the Daleks, a story I had written off in the past and had so much fun with it. <laughs> it is deliriously enjoyable, you know. You know, it no, I'm not gonna make comparisons, that's not fair. Um, okay, well then can I spin us back into the classic series? Um yeah. to talk about an actor I know you admired greatly, and that's Bernard Kay. Oh, I believe you knew quite well, and I know, certainly know you did commentaries or a commentary with him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did. I know him that well. I think. Yeah, I suppose I. I suppose I did. Um, I, I again, it was when I got quite nervous with. I, I put John Kelly under a lot of pressure to get Bernard on the Colony in Space, uh, commentary because I loved his work. I and I really wanted to. I really wanted to meet him. I mean, for me, a lot of the, the reason I will do a Doctor Who project for very little money is because uh, I feel like I'm, I'm getting you know, professional access to, 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 to people whose work I've admired. So, you know, that's my payment, if you like. And, um, and so I, I did an unusual thing is that I, I photostatted all the pages from running through corridors where I say really nice things about Bernard Kay's performances, because I knew I'd written, you know, quite a length about what I admired about his work. And I, I stuck it in a, I, you know, I stuck it in a 
in a in a, in an envelope. And I think I'd said, um, you know, I'd love to meet you for lunch or something. Uh, you know, it'd be it'd be great to, you know, to meet you out outside. I think I must have done that because we did. Um, and but I I waited to do that till the end. You know, again, I didn't want that hanging over us during the thing. Um, but we did go outside at one point. Uh, during during a break and he got out a hip flask which had glenfiddich in it and uh, proffered me a bit and i felt very grown up and uh obviously he'd identified me as somebody somebody who, and we had that in common so that we could both put it away uh i mean he never even got hung hangovers but i can put it away he could put more away um as i was to discover um and and then he emailed me when he got home having read my stuff and said oh that's really nice thanks yeah brilliant let's do that so we arranged to meet for lunch and the morning the day we were meeting for lunch um i got up and i was just about to get in the shower and leave and uh the guardian rang up and said is it true that michael goffs died and i went yeah, oh yeah i think so they said oh well, we've got an obituary ready to go that's all about his stage and his film work but we haven't really got anything about his tv stuff can you no about his stage work can you do stuff about his tv and film you know 250 words for five minutes ago so oh fuck okay so i did that in a, you know in about 25 minutes because i should have been going then uh and then i you know and then i had a quick chat and then i jumped jumped something and i was i was sending the guardian corrections on the tube on my oh, phone before i realized i'd got a year wrong or something like this <laughs> uh and uh so i was a, i think i was a little late for bernard but he was fine about it and then we had lunch and uh oh did we yeah we had yeah that's right we had we had lunch and um i got home at about midnight <laughs> and the problem is i had quite a few meetings with bernard and i don't and he told me some great stories and I'm not sure uh, I remember uh, any of them. Uh, what condition actually, were you in at the end of those meetings? Yeah, well, exactly. And um, but also, um, Fraser Hines came to stay at our flat in London, and um, and so I and I mentioned this to Bernard and said, you know, do, do you want to? And, and I know, and I knew Fraser had had liked working with Bernard. They worked together on Emmerdale as well. And uh, so I emailed Bernard, and he said, oh yeah, but do me a favour, don't tell fraser i'm coming so um we I said to fraser you know we're having dinner tonight you know because he was he was often about doing stuff but he was going to be in and we we're going to have dinner that night and uh and bernard came round, and so we had a great great dinner that night and again catherine my then wife had had something the next day so she went to bed early fraser went to bed and bernard and i stayed up with a bottle of scotch and talked into the night and i don't remember any of it but uh uh he uh best anecdotes you've ever had there <laughs> of course yeah but he left me uh we talked about right know we talked about writing and he used to be a reporter and i have a little black notebook uh that he left me saying you know a good writer should always have a notebook and i've i've still got that uh to, you know he said you should always be writing stuff down and he did that uh and so we stayed in touch uh, and he'd come out and we, i'd meet him for drinks sometimes um and uh and and yeah, he said he, you know, he, he he sort of liked my company, and which which was nice. I found very flattering. He was quite, I you know, I think I I gave him a pass because I admired him. So he, he could be quite. I, I made the mistake of a, occasionally 
meeting him with some other people and then I and I sort of saw him how others saw him and he could be quite sort of grouchy and quite cantankerous his sense of humor was a bit sort of pernickety and a bit pushing I could see how and I could suddenly see how he might wind people up the wrong way you can hear it on the colony in space commentary because he's bringing the director to task by going that that bit's rubbish there yeah you know i'm in that car i've given him the gun why would i do it and he tells off katie manning a couple of times things like but you know what i'm like i'm getting a real sense of who he is and but he's also being charming and amiable and and he's very knowledgeable about it as well I, yes, I think I'd have forgiven. I, I, I'd, I'd have not forgiven those that sort of. Yeah, I remember him saying, "Ah, oh, it's rubbish." And uh, the, the thing about the machine gun, you go, "Why are you worrying about that?" That's could be a bit <laughs> pernickety. And I, I would be less forgiving of that in somebody else. I think. But he was also extremely well read. He was also quite vulnerable. But you know, a lot of that bravado was he had had a terrible childhood. That was the other thing. He sent me his autobiography which was never published because he he stopped writing it, but he was a brilliant writer. He, he had been a writer, he'd been a reporter for Bolton Evening News. Uh, and, and he could, sort of stops writing his autobiography just as it gets to the acting bit, which would have been the bit that might have got him through some publishers. But, but he, he'd, he'd won a prize from The Guardian, a writing prize for the first chapter of it. But he got a writing agent, and then I think he was difficult. And But, but particularly he struggled to write about um, his his marriage to Patricia Haynes because he he loved her and she died of cancer in 1977 and he never got over that um but he also had this terrible childhood um his his mother committed suicide his father was committed to a an asylum and he was brought up by his grandparents and uh, and he had a terrible abscess in his tooth when he was a kid um that that, that meant that he had to stay indoors for ages because even light affected him and all and he and he and he was a I think like a lot of men of that generation, I think he was a, he had a lot of stuff going on underneath that he'd probably not sometimes never been able to articulate or had articulated it through bravado and alcohol. Um, uh, And he was a complicated man. A lot of, a lot of, well, I think people are complicated. So, so uh, again, maybe I was forgiving of some of his, Bits, as I say, it was only when it, you introduced him to somebody you'd never met him before that you suddenly saw, oh, he he can be a bit, he, he can be a bit tricky, uh, and I can see why. So, for example, Bernard Holly, who was also a friend of mine, and Bernard Bernard was a lovely, gentle, much less complicated fellow. Didn't like him. Didn't didn't like him. I could you could tell that they were oil and water. They did not mix. Bernard K's sense of humour did not chime with Bernard Holly's. Um, I think I think Bernard Kay saw a conversation as a as almost a bit of a joust, whereas Bernard Holly just wanted a chat. <laughs> and I have sympathy me, with both. It reminds me of something that you said to me <clears throat> on a previous hamster commentary, and that is it's almost a shame now because when people do commentaries or are interviewed for documentaries, there, there's such a sort of towing of the company line and sort of actors of that generation there was a bit more eccentricity there was a bit more difficultness you could your personality could flourish a bit more it's a bit more interesting to listen to yeah well let's do a load of uh commentaries for 21st century doctor who in about 30 years time and uh we'll see <laughs> we'll see oh, we'll get the nobody's got anything to lose <laughs> um but yeah bernard bernard was a uh, bernard yeah but i i'm 
and he was very kind to me. I did my who's round with him when I I was, and he'd been, you know, he'd obviously been to mine and Catherine's house. And when we met up at the who's round, I said, I'm, you know, I'm not living at home anymore. And he actually offered that I could stay in his spare room, which was very kind of him. Um, I did, I didn't. I, I was, I, I was staying with somebody else. But, um, uh, and he was, you know, for all his toughness, he was actually very sweet. That uh, during during that. Uh, and I'm yeah, as I say, I think I was probably more forgiving of him than I might have been if had I not admired him so. Um, but I, you know, I, I I consider myself very, very fortunate to have to have had a chance to talk to somebody whose work I admired. And and, you know, he was he was very humble about his his, you know, his his work. He was surprised that anybody knew who he was, whereas actually he was he was a, an, an admired member of the profession. And actually, I, I am quite proud of the fact that um his death was mentioned on the bbc's midnight news and that was because when i found out that he died i thought i don't want this to be ov overlooked and i i did a press release i got in touch with reuters reuters and the press association then got in touch with me and and, and all the stuff that was then reported in the papers was quotations from that which i'd essentially put together for them and he was on the midnight news and he got on a, and he and he got he got covered in a few of the papers actually uh and uh and 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 I know that that was that was down to me. So I I feel I feel I did a good thing there. I'm I'm I'm. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. He was dead, so it won't have made any difference to him. Uh, but there's something about it being marked that uh, yeah. that was important for me, and I'm glad I was able to do that. Well, then the the last because I've got a few questions about actors and obituaries actually. Um, so the last person I'm going to ask you about is a particular favourite of mine who uh, I know you've rubbed shoulders with on occasion. Um, and I know the I think the first time you met him was one of the most touching stories I've heard. That's Colin Baker. Oh, do you know what? He's, you know, he was the first doctor I met. Have I, I must have told this story. Uh, I've heard right. it on Happy Times and Places. And right. It's a glorious story, so it's worth repeating. So Colin was touring a production of Corpse, which was a farce in which he played uh, uh, twins. I've seen uh, it in Eastbourne. He got right. Was 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 he skewered to the drinks cabinet? Uh, uh, nah, now that's the other part. He has since toured it, playing the other part. That's the one I so, saw. So when he first did it, he was playing the younger part, and Jack Watling, <laughs> Jack Watling was playing the 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 guy who gets skewered. So it was starring Colin Baker and Jack Watling. Uh, I had a chance to get Jack Watling's autograph, and I didn't. Stupid fool! A cruel business, Toby. The older uh, you get, your parts shift. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah. Uh, oh God, yes. I, I mean, you're talking to the guy who's was delighted to be in Mark Gatiss's Christmas ghost story last year, but the part I played was called the grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it was in flashback, but nonetheless, uh, you know, I was some, I, I, I was to become that person's grandfather, but nonetheless, that's not what it, on my CV. It says the <laughs> grandfather. Uh, that's a nod to Heidi, by You'll the way. Never be the... typecast. All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but uh, so, so we went to, see, I, and I went to see with, a, I had a, this older friend called, uh, Derek, he's still a friend of our family. He was a sort of handyman that uh, did stuff, but he he took an interest in me. He was very kind and uh, and uh, and and would sort of drive me around to places and 
when he was doing work in Wolverhampton, he dropped me off at a comic shop called The Place, and uh, he'd, or if he was, you know, he would he would get me videos and uh, Doctor Who videos and stuff. He was just a just a nice man who I think realised that there was this this kid that 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 uh, uh, you know was a bit of a loose end in the middle of nowhere. So he, you know, he he would like he would he would pick up pyramids of Mars if he saw it cheap somewhere, and he was just kind. Um, and uh, so he came with me and my mum to see this play in Wolverhampton. He drove. Uh, and, uh, and you know, I knew that you could meet actors at the stage door, but I didn't know what that meant. Uh, and so and my friend Derek, who's, you know, he was a grown up. He was in his, you know, he was 40 or whatever, and I was 13. And uh, so we went round the back. And we walked through this door, which I've since discovered was, was not the stage door, is the official sort of exit and entrance for performers. And there is an etiquette, you know, there's somebody that mans the stage door. It's not just a door you walk through. You sort of knock on and there's there's a receptionist there. They either let you in or not. Or you wait outside the stage door for, for the actors to exit. That's how that works. That's what we I were... did when I saw Colin Baker at um, Thorpe. So I waited outside the stage door. Well, we walked in through what was, I think, you know, the the sort of, the tradesmen, the props entrance, you know, slightly big metallic door that that big skips go in and out of or something, you know. So, so, so yeah, it was some sort of, you know, props egress. Uh, and we walked through that and ended up on the stage of the play. Uh, Not during the performance, I hope. No, 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 this is, no, no. This is, uh, and, and this stage runner goes, oh, can I help you? And my friend said, Derek, bless him, said, yes, sir, we're here to see Mr. Baker. And she said, oh, is he expecting you? And he said, yes, <laughs> which, of course, I would never have done any of this. Uh, and she knocks on the door and says, Colin. And he goes, yes. And she says, these people, he goes, oh, hello, come in. And totally welcomes us in. Uh, chat, sign things, couple of pictures. Uh, I've got, the, you know, the pictures. And he's, you know, he's just put his shirt, he's sweaty from the performance. He's, but, you know, he's still in his own zone, his own area. It's not, it's not usual unless you're, you know a mate of the actor or whatever to be to be in the dressing room you know even if mates of mine come to see me at a show they you know they wait outside till i come out uh and he was so nice and then i said you know i want to write a doctor who fanzine and could i interview you bloody bloody blah and he said yeah yeah come you know come before the show on wednesday or whatever so we got there so we went then before the show the following week uh and i could hear him on the tape you know, this Mr. Baker, this is your half hour call, he said, which means you've only got about five minutes, you know, 25 minutes later, Mr. Baker, this is your five minute call. He's got a massive costume to put on, you know, he's in drag for the makeup and stuff at the beginning of the play. I didn't know any of this, uh, but he's he literally. You know, he should have been on stage when I go and I got did not get that from him at all. He didn't hurry me. He wasn't flustered. He was so nice. It gives a brilliant interview. Jack Watling does come in at one point. Uh, uh, so I've got a little bit of Jack Watling on tape. So, oh, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and and so lovely. And I've seen him be great with kids ever since. I think he's I think he's a model in how to be uh, and and a real example of of of, uh, of how to make you know a, a most memorable part of my life the first doctor who i ever met and it couldn't have been better and i'm very very grateful to him and of course i've since you know got to work with him and and consort with him and uh and he's always and he's always you know very lovely and uh but 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 nothing will i think nothing will ever top that because 
he was there was a benevolence and a kindness to him that I I hugely admire and am grateful for uh, and can never be taken away. He's got great memory as well, you know. I saw him one year at a Phantom convention and he flirted outrageously with me. And we had a picture of the pair of us sort of mincing to the camera. Um, and then the next year he was like, oh, come on, let's up our game. And he gave me a kiss on the cheek. And I, I think I'll be married to him in a few years, you know, if I keep going to these conventions. Oh, he's so charming. No, he's, he is. He's really nice. He's really nice. Uh, my first doctor. How lovely. So, yeah, very lucky. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's 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 great. Well, then I'm going to ask you a couple of questions now. Then about um, actors. So John Hall asks, "Who do you consider the biggest one that got away? In other words, a Doctor Who actor or crew member that you had an opportunity to interview, but for one reason or another, one unable to do so before he or she passed away." Well, this happened a few times because quite often somebody would say, oh, you know, can you get back to me? Which means, can you get back to me? But because I'd already plucked up the courage once, I then felt like I might be bothering them again. So so uh, I, I got a lovely questionnaire back from Christopher Ray, who's PC groom in The Demons and also one of the submariners in The Sea Devils. And he he was a really interesting guy because he had a very famous light shop called Christopher Ray it was called Christopher Ray. You had one in London and one in Manchester. So what an interesting career to go from being a sort of small part actor to being the name of a shop. Uh, and I would have loved that story. And he's, and I, and I called him and he said, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm actually about to do a deal. So could you call me in a few weeks? And of course I said, I would mind. I didn't because I'd, I felt having done it once. I don't know. It was almost like, Oh, if you haven't agreed straight away, ah, uh, my own, it's all my own sort of doubts and faults and my own demons um and and so and then i read he you know his obituary in the telegraph went oh bugger um but the one i got i got very close to was a guy called christopher burgess who is swan in enemy of the world professor phillips in terror of the autons and barnes in uh planet of the spiders really good actor with a lovely sort of broken quality about him and he was in the same uh old people's home as um a guy called Robert Aldous, who is the insurgent in episode one of the Dalek invasion of earth. And um, I talked to Bob about, you know, he said, Christopher Burgess here, but, but not very well. It's got emphysema. And I think, but, but I said, Oh, I'd love, you know, I'd love to get the opportunity to chat to chat to him. Uh, and he said, Oh, I don't know if he'd be up for it because he's, you know, he's not, he's not great. And then Bob sent me things saying, amazing. Yeah. Christopher said, he'll do it. So brilliant. Uh, and I was, it was the summer holidays and I'd, got my kids so i said well okay i'll be i'll be back in touch about that you know in a, in a few weeks and then bob sent me an email and said you know but bad news i'm afraid christopher's christopher's passed away so i mean i got the impression i it would have been more a lovely chance to meet him than to have got anything ah, horrible word i'm just about to, to got anything useful out of him in the same way that i you know i think my jeffrey bale did interview uh, is is fairly light on content it, it was it was more that i was I, I was lucky enough to spend an afternoon in the company of jeffrey bailden but uh it, you know he was a very old man by by then and i th and i think christopher burgess had emphysema and i think had had d dementia but um nonetheless even if all it had meant that was i gave a nice afternoon to an old man who was a who was a bit vague um but like to visit her that to me is a little bit of payback for all the hours of pleasure that these people have have given me. So sometimes it's just nice 
that and sometimes it's just nice when you go away and go oh that you know they're pleased that somebody is interested and so you know i i i quite enjoy that element of it sometimes but yeah i uh there was a so there was a few like that like christopher ray and, and christopher burgess all the christophers uh who who i the trail went cold with a little bit i went i went back and forth with with a few other i went back and forth with tomic bork a few times and it never happened uh you know you get less i get less worried if it was somebody that's been interviewed by somebody else as well because i feel like what i was trying to do with who's round a lot of the time was to to mop up uh, uh people that had, we'd missed on the dvds or or you, you know uh, uh, not spoken about doctor who on record or something so that's why i didn't tend to do designers because phil newman had already done such a good job getting all of the designers and the one that i did get malcolm middleton had not talked to uh, phil so i you know i'd, I'd kind of thought well uh, he, he's not going to talk to me but he's the uncle of somebody i know um and but only vaguely know it's mark morris the writer mark morris mm -hmm. but he mark said oh my uncle did the abominable snowman i thought well, he's not going to say yes because he's never said yes in the past but because it came via mark uh suddenly you know there's no rules to this. Suddenly somebody who said no to everybody else. And it's happened the other way around. I, I know people who said no to me that have been happy to be interviewed by Alex Moore or Ben Jolly or some of the others. So I'm not saying that I have any special uh, code. It's it's sometimes different circumstances. I know Paul Shelley had said no to me because he'd been asked by a friend of a friend. And then somebody else asked Paul Shelley and he said yes. Uh, and it was within about a month of each other. And both totally independently and one time he said no because he didn't want to do that sort of thing and the other time he said yes because he fancied it or whatever it literally be down to the day they're having yeah it? um but i i was pretty i was pretty lucky there are i think there are people that i would have obviously loved to have uh to have with quatermass it was particularly frustrating because i I, you know, I wrote to a lot of the Quatermass actors, but only if I saw their names in the Radio Times or an Artists and Agents yearbook that I happened to have bought from a car boot sale, um, or, or if they were in something. And and and, and the rest, I assumed, were dead because Quatermass was so long ago. And then, you know, some of them only died within the last, you know, ten fifteen years, and 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 were there, you know, ripe for the for the plucking. But mm. uh, bear in mind, a lot of that was pre the internet age, so you had to go with, you know what what was out there but uh the, there are plenty that got away and i in my i sometimes lie awake at night and think what could have been and what could have been was probably just a nice letter <laughs> but there we go i'd still i still feel like i i missed out i feel like i missed out on jack watling because i what would i've got his autograph would that have made me feel any better but i do feel sometimes john ringham i worked with well i was at the royal exchange theater and he was in the play after me uh and I actually copied over all his Doctor Who's onto a VHS that I was going to give him. And then the Aztecs came out on DVD at the same time. And he's interviewed on that. And I thought, oh, well, he's done. He's done a Doctor Who interview. And, and I am an actor now. So I felt I'd perhaps come across as a bit of a fan if I asked him to sign some of my Doctor Who stuff. or uh, And I'd love John Ringham's signature in my stuff. Again, what difference does it make? Uh, what uh, A notch on the bedpost? I don't know. But I... I, I think I would feel better, but why would I feel better? So I could show off to people. It's a weird trinket, but nonetheless. So I, I go through all of this stuff, but I did, I did meet him because he was friends with somebody of the cast of mine. And I, I said, Oh yes, pleasure to meet you. I like your work, you know, blah, blah, blah. And shook hands and said, hello, but that's all I have to show for my encounter with John Ringham. Would it be any better if I had anything more tangible? 
well, he might have liked it if I'd said nice things to him about his acting because I thought he was a great actor. So I might have, I might have given, you know, and you find that most actors are, as I say, quite happy to talk. So I might have given him a nice day. Perhaps that's the way to frame it, to have gone, oh, that's a shame that I missed out on on making an old actor feel happy and wanted. But um, but but that it was, yeah, that was sort of slight professional conceit. I was going, well, I'm not a Doctor Who fan now. I'm an I'm an I'm an actual <laughs> I'm actor. I'm, I'm in I'm in loot at the Royal Exchange. I I don't know. Well, I could have been both of those. That you know, I could have been both of those things. I could have been in loot at the Royal Exchange Theatre and also said to John Ringham, "Can I buy you a coffee and talk to you about your career? Because I'd really enjoy that." And he would have probably enjoyed that too. And we were in the same orbit for you know a month, and that so that was a wasted opportunity too. No, we'll say whilst you are lying in bed and thinking about the ones that got away, it's definitely worth remembering all of the ones that you've navigated around. And it's an extraordinary number. Yeah, but now I think of all the things I should have said or shouldn't have said. (laughs) (laughs) You're that person. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm I'm constantly running away from the that. Past. I'm too scared to ask you the next question. Oh God, because <laughs> there's another one that got away. Joe Short, the lovely Joe Short, asks: Is there anybody you would have loved to have written their obituary but didn't? Well, I mean, I remember getting very cross with the Guardian because they got, I think, somebody from the Catweasel fan club to write Jeffrey Baildens. And uh, and they didn't. And and this made me actually quite cross because it said he survived by a sister, uh, which I, I think it said. Um, but it didn't mention anything to do with his partner, the actor Alan Rowe, who is skin sale in Horror of Fang Rock and bloody, bloody, blah. And I, I rang Diana at the Guardian. I emailed her and said, um, can you put you need to put a thing in Jeffrey Belden saying he was he had a 50 year relationship with with Alan Rowe. And they said, oh, well, um, well, well, we were consulted with the Cat Weasel Appreciation Society. I said, yeah, but people who are interested in, and I've discovered this when writing obits of people from, you know, things like Blake Seven or the Avengers, people from the fan club are interested in the show and that's it. You say, do you know where they served in the army? Well, never bothered asking them that. The questions I ask them start when they're cast in the programme and end when they finish in the programme, you know. Um, uh, and th- no, that's not necessarily... T- to their detriment, the world always think you should be interested in, you know, surely the whole thing is about broadening horizons anyway, but it doesn't matter. I'm not going to, I'm not going to criticize people for enjoying a thing in the way that they enjoy. And, and I know what it's like to have tunnel vision, but for me, it felt a bit, it, it felt a little bit more unconsciously prejudiced than that, that they wouldn't miss a wife out. Do you know what I mean? Because it was a because it was a gay man and a long term gay relationship. Now the Guardian is not a homophobic newspaper. Um, it's a very liberal left wing newspaper. But 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 the whole but the whole situation arose from I think I'm not casting aspersions on the person that gave them the information. But why did nobody why did nobody mention? You wouldn't not mention a long term fifty years yeah. in that you know, time period. That's and, something and, to celebrate. And then the resp- and the response to that, they said, well, you could write a letter in pointing that out. And I said, I'm not writing a fucking letter in because uh, it's not my business. And, you know, uh, it's the, sh- the ship has sailed and I'm I'm not correct. I'll correct your mistake for you. But if you, if you want to put it in corrections and clarifications, but I'm not not writing a letter in. That seems right. So it, it just sort of fizzled away and they, they didn't seem actually that bothered. And I was I was quite angry about that because I saw that as. Uh, well, one, it was bad work. It was poor work. But two, it was it was as a result of 
uh, oversight and thoughtlessness. And then when it was brought to their attention, I yeah, I just wasn't happy about the whole situation. And I I felt sometimes, you know, you, you miss out on doing one and you go, oh, I wish I'd got the chance to do that just because it would have been nice to have done it. Um, I quite I quite often miss out on so because there's another chap, Anthony Haywood, who I think tends to be their first choice, actually, Anthony. He's a proper journalist. Um, so when he did Michael Ferguson's, I I, I was a bit disappointed because I knew Michael. Do you know what I mean? But actually, uh, and actually, I, I think Anthony emailed me and said, can you give me details about Michael Ferguson? That's how I found out Michael had died. And I was like, oh, fuck, have they asked you? Because I knew him. I, yeah, I'll tell you all of this, but I actually know this, so I should be writing it. But, you know, and Anthony was asked. He got first names. And I was really upset about that, actually. But then Anthony's was published and it was really good. And you go, well, no arguments then. That's fine. Anthony's done a good job. He's a fine obituarist and, and, and journalist. I just felt a bit, I, I felt a bit sad I missed out on, on Michael's and Ken Westbury's and, and, and felt, a, yeah, felt a little bit, oh, that's a shame because I knew, I, you know, I'd interview Ken as well. Um, so that was, that was more on a personal thing, but, but certainly no animus to Anthony. And Anthony has been very helpful to me when I've done some that he might well have liked to have done. Uh, but he's, he's very good at the digging out uh, some of the, he's, he's much more journalistic than I am. Uh, he's, he's got ways of finding out about what people's parents did for a living that are, that are, that are alchemy. And he's always totally, there's never any sense of, well, no, uh, you're doing that one. You, you, find out mate and we and we and we share stuff with each other but i do i do get the impression that that, that he's he's their first choice and uh i i tend to be asked either if it's doctor who or if Anthony's on holiday <laughs> or or if he's already done it for the telegraph because he writes for them as well whereas i wouldn't i wouldn't write for the telegraph um but still, anyway i mean regardless of the why it's still an incredible honor to write here um uh but um so that yeah, there is honor amongst obituaries, but I was very sad that Dell didn't get one. Dell Henny. Uh, I wrote one for him for the Herald. Uh, and I think Anthony wrote his for the Telegraph, but uh, the Guardian turned turned him down. They also turned John Bennett down. Uh, because you have to sort of pitch. Uh and they either they either say yeah or no. Uh and sometimes their choices of who they accept and who they don't baffle me. Um, so I was quite pleasantly surprised when they accepted Stephen Thorne, who I pitched and thought, well, they might not go for him because they didn't go for, I can't remember the order now, but, you know, having not gone for Dell, I think because Dell was maybe famous for Peckinpah and Peckinpah is quite misogynistic. And, and I, and I, I wonder if the Guardian are sort of going, well, you know, he's famous for, you know, the Susan George scene in, in Straw Dogs and, you know, uh, you know, you know, yeah, so there's an element of that that they were slightly sort of askance at. Uh, but I thought Dell, an actor of his stature, deserved a Guardian obituary, and I was quite... And, he, and and Clive Merrison asked if I was doing one. I said, they've turned me down. And Clive actually emailed them and I think got quite stroppy with them. Uh, and he said that they'd, they'd told him that they weren't doing it because they, you know, there's there's limited space. But then they'll ask me, they asked me to do Susan Farmer, who was a, who was a Hammer actress. And she's in one of the Blake Sevens, who didn't have a massive career, but I think they have far more obituaries pitched for white men so if so if somebody is a woman you're more likely to get one even if you've not had as good a career as the man now i can see why that would be but i can also see that there are certain injustices that happen there as well so it's a it's a it's a tricky one uh but you at the end of the day they're the publisher they publish who they want um i i tend not to pitch to them anymore because i find them quite stressful to do i know that anthony will do a good job 
um anyway and that it's it's his living uh and so i tend to now only do it if they ask me uh um and, and unless it, it, it i mean i knew john nettleton quite well but he had such a good theatrical career i knew michael coveney who was the you know proper theatrical historian type um would would get that and coveney to clifford rose as well who i who i knew a little bit so you know i'm just i'm realistic about it and but 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 um then they asked me to do you know one of hinge and bracket who i didn't know at all um they did ask me to do the chuckle brother who died as well but i was very busy at that time and uh and i and i turned it down because that you know i'd had to have done a lot of research the research is a killer because you have to do it in 24 hours and you have to and that, that first paragraph where you find out you have to find out their parents names because of the guardian style parents names what they did for a living where they were educated brothers and sisters all that sort of stuff at the end of the day, I, I'm, I'm, I subscribe to births, marriages and deaths and, I've, and all the records and all that, but they're incomplete and quite often people aren't there. And, and so what you end up having to do is phone a member of the family, but you're phoning literally just after the news of somebody's death's been announced. So if God, if it's nerve wracking, ringing an actor that was in Doctor Who once and asking to take them for a cup after of tea, you an interview, them, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ringing morning. People. But of course, actually, 99% of the time, they're really happy that their person is getting a guardian obituary and they're really, really helpful. But that's not what it feels like at my end. And again, I get cold sweats. I get very nervous. I get very stressed. So I'm, I'm glad when they're in and when they're done. Well, I'm not really, because then I worry that people will point out mistakes or go, oh, did, did you, you uh, don't forget this. And you're like, I haven't forgot it. I've got 800 words, you prick. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I, I hate looking at, you know, never read the comments. So I find it all very stressful. But but I know because I get lovely responses. I know that generally the, the 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 people that I do them that are left behind are very happy with what what I've done because I I like to I think be slightly more appreciative than the than the guardians sometimes go. I think they prefer something that's a bit sort of colder and objective. But I I try and do at least a few lines that that are are slightly more. Um, yeah, have a have a more of an appreciative tone uh, than a, than a than a purely cold, you know, stone cold objective uh, obituary, um, because I wouldn't be writing about people if I didn't admire them, you know. Um, and actually, I was quite pleased because they did quite a sniffy one about Peter Wingard, and uh, and I nearly wrote to them and said that was I didn't like your Peter Wingard one. I, I and I thought it was it was a bit unnecessarily unkind. And actually they got such a bite back from that from people wow. that they then and I because I thought I don't want to get cross with I don't want to have a row with them. There's no no point. Forget it. Leave it. It doesn't matter. There's no point in 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 leaving any rancor somewhere because you'll only piss them off. And I sat on it and I didn't. And I was really proud of myself for not doing that because at five o'clock that afternoon, they emailed me and went, we've had loads of negative feedback for our Peter Wingard one. Could you write a response to it that casts him in a slightly better light? <laughs> so I got to do what I wanted to do anyway without sort of emailing them and being cross with them. Um, uh, so so now, yeah, I tend to wait for them to come to me, but I would have liked to have done, uh, yeah, I thought I thought Dell deserved one. I thought John Bennett deserved one back in the day. I did write one for Robert James, and they were going to run it and going to run it, and then they didn't um, uh, because they ran it. And so I, I actually spoke to his widow, but uh, it never appeared. Uh, she was an actress called Mona Bruce, who was in loads of stuff as well. Um, but, um, 
Yeah, De- Dell's. De- De- but of course, you know, like I said, it doesn't matter to them. They're they're dead. Um, and actually, most people, you know, give it a glance in the newspaper, close the newspaper, and forget about it. But for but for me, it's something that sort of it's a marker. It's indelibly there. But uh, of course, it's not really, and it's not really that important. <laughs> but I think it's you may not appreciate it. But I think it's wonderful that that you think that and that you want to mark that and that you will get angry if that's not there so my very last question then for this episode is from the intriguingly titled mestor the magnificent oh i like mestor the magnificent <laughs> we have had twitter exchanges i'm not sure what his questions are going on about because i think the information's there but i mean his byline is if anyone knows it'll be toby yes Oh, the question well, no, is not necessarily. Whatever happened to Brian Hales? Well, he died of a heart attack in 1978, just before. Because the Moon Stallion is often talked about as being um, Sarah Sutton's, you know, first te- or your major bake through telly, and it was written by Brian Hales. What nobody mentions is it was actually broadcast after his death, uh, uh, and he was from the West Midlands. Um, he had a beard. Uh, Terence Dix always said he was very affable, but yeah, he was. I uh, don't they call him a gentleman writer in Doctor Who, a celebration. That's what uh, Jeremy Bentham describes him as. He was. Uh, it was. It was funny because when, if you were a Doctor Who fan of a certain age, when when Doctor Who, a celebration came out, um, you suddenly realised that all those people whose books were on your shelf, David Whittaker, Malcolm Hulk, and Brian Hales, were dead, and it, and it and I think it it set you up to think that. Everybody involved with Doctor Who was dead, apart from Terence Dix and Barry Letts, when of course they weren't at all. But because straight, those... I would have loved to have met Ben Aronovich, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was so you know in 1983 when Doctor Who was 20 years old, one was given the impression that you know more than likely if somebody worked on Doctor Who in the black and white days, they were dead. You know, and I assumed everyone from Quatermass was dead. And I, as I mentioned, you know, actually loads of them lived far longer than than, than I would have thought or expected. Um, but of course, they weren't at all. Um, but when you're. How old was I in 1983? When you're nine, you know, people who did things in the black and white days were ancient. And of course, people looked older then. You look at those photos of David Whittaker, who died at 52. Mm. So, you know, when he's got that white hair and he looks like a, you know, a. a a hungry vampire you know he was probably he's probably he's younger than i am now you look at william hartnell when he took the role and you look at paul mcgann now who is older yeah night and day yeah so and and, you know i i remember thinking you know you would you would read those names and 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 i remember thinking you know people like dennis spooner and innes lloyd you know they must be ancient so of course when they died you were like well i'm surprised they were still alive because they were doing the others and then of course you look back now dennis spooner i think was 55 when he died (laughs) innes lloyd was 62 64 none of these were old men when they died but they seemed to me to be old men you know, you know you're sounding like now Tom Baker in that Caesar Doom commentary where the fella comes on and he goes, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were dead. I said you were dead in episode one. <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end, when he chips out this this actor, I can't remember his name. Is it Kenneth? Is it Ken Gilbert? Yeah. Yeah. 
he goes, right, I shall proceed to die now. So when you tell people I'm dead in the future, <laughs> the uh, facts will be straight. He was he was one I would have liked to have interviewed, but he was uh, he was because I love his performances, Mr. Dunbar. He was a good friend of Brian Miller, actually. But uh, but uh, no, I missed I missed out on him as well. But again, I, I, I took my foot off the clutch slightly because um, because he was on the DVD. And once somebody was on the DVD, I thought, well, you know, they've they've been got in a way. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know why I think I. But there's only look. I can't have been. I'll, yeah, I can't have been, I can't interview everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but you have interviewed uh, an incredible amount of people, and I'm sure anyone listening is inc- extremely grateful. Especially, you know, the Who's Round where those effectively went out for free. Uh, with and I and I know donations flew in, especially for that Russell Davis one. Yeah, yeah. Russell actually dropped me a line and said that uh, you know the Terence Higgins Trust had been in touch and said they'd had a spike in donations, which is lovely. Uh, well, yeah, people were giving me their time. I thought um, I, I I overcomplicated it actually because one, um, you know, I I, did, I I didn't know how to put stuff out. So I was dependent upon Big Finish and uh, and and sort of beholden to them and their schedule. And I'm and it was it was very nice to be under their umbrella. But uh, I do look back and go, why didn't I have the confidence to do that myself? Mm. And it's a confidence thing. I didn't I didn't feel I would be legitimate. Do you know what I mean? That absolutely, um, could have been something of of its own, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Which, but but I, I mean, I don't have a problem with is uh, the association with big finish is a is a nice one and uh and 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 you know having it housed on their website brought attention to it and all of that sort of thing but i do i do wish i'd had a bit more confidence in my in myself really um i never used to do stuff a lot of the stuff that i've done i've always i directed stuff at university but i got a mate to do it with me and then i ended up doing it all myself but i didn't i, I felt i had to I had to do it with someone and i and i adapted 1984 for the stage but i did it with my mate but actually then he went off drinking and smoking and i i did it um but i've i've always i've always i've never yeah i always seem to seem to uh, need need to sort of have my coattails on 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 something else to legit legit legitimize something i'm doing and i'm i need i need to so that's why these podcasts would be quite good good as i've finally done something and just i was just about to say that you know yeah um, entirely but, your voice but by the same token i do wish you know i think too much information and indefinable magic are interesting enough well too too much information particularly would be a great bbc podcast uh and then at least somebody else could edit it and source clips and you know put music on it and all of, of that sort of thing but um and then i wouldn't have to do everything myself and and also that would that would certainly get it more listeners and and that sort of thing um so i think yeah so there is a there is a downside as well but i'm yeah no i uh i don't know why i went off on that uh, I, I yeah i think it just yes it was interesting that i felt i had to i i had to have somebody else put it out for me when when i could have just put it out but um then again the fact that it's on the big finish page with all their other releases and it and it means it's out there yeah. and it means it's people can download it for free and it's a resource that people can use and it's a lovely memorial for a lot of people that are no longer with us um i think is really lovely you know they'll always be there and those 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 people will always sort of live for those 50 and occasionally you get you get relatives of people going oh i didn't even know this was this was there and that's my granddad or that's my dad you know i didn't know my dad had done that and it's really lovely to hear him and, and they can that. listen so, and hear their so voice that's nice. yeah incredible that's nice. 
Well, thank you for the interviews. Thank you for the anecdotes. I feel as if we've celebrated some of the greats of Dark. Oh. We barely scratched the surface, but, you know, we've got a finite amount of time here, but we, we certainly have celebrated some of the greats. Um, we'll be back for the third part of this interview, <laughs> if Toby's not too tired. No, I'm right. Uh, where we'll be talking about, oh, we'll be touching on podcasting again, Quatermass, Running Through Corridors, documentaries, and it's going to be entirely told, don't wince, through questions <laughs> that have been thrown at me from mostly the hamster audience, but also, hey. here's a little enticing one, people you work for. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Toby, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Joe.